Hebrews chapter 1 this morning is where we're going to be spending some time this morning. Today we open a letter that is a sermon to a people who find themselves hurting, who find themselves questioning and wondering and even fearing for their lives. These people had heard the gospel and more, li- more than likely they had heard it from the apostles directly if they had not come in contact with Jesus himself during his lifetime. They had experienced the new birth of salvation and were faithful to gathering together and studying the word, albeit much different than what you and I know as gathering together in this room. For in this period, much of the gatherings would be much smaller than even what we think of. Perhaps some of you come from different cities or different towns and you think of a church gathering as being in the hundreds or even in the thousands and you think maybe this is a small gathering but when we think of those who gather during and and to which this sermon is written, they think of gatherings being even much smaller than what we would gather for out of fear and they would be much smaller than this, just a few people, perhaps even a, a few families gathered in a home to hear a message of the gospel taught to worship and to break bread together. One distinctive we find about the book of Hebrews is that it's one of those rare books that where we do not know definitively who the author is, nor we, do we absolutely know the audience, but we can take clues from the text and rather draw some pretty concrete conclusions as to whom the audience is. So as we dive into this sermon off and on over the next few weeks and months, We know that the pastor is writing to a congregation, probably a congregation that is in Rome, whom is coming under extreme persecution at the hands of Nero, who himself is looking for redemption. Now, that wasn't a mistake. Nero himself is looking for redemption after the people are looking less and less favorably on him for his absence. Now, think about this. This is written in a period around AD 60-64. Now, if you're a history buff, you know around that time, Nero lit fire to the city of Rome, and he wasn't there. And so Nero is looking for redemption. He's looking to gain favor among the people among whom he had lost favor. And so his solution to gain favor was to place blame on the fire on the Christians. To place blame for this great fire that burned. I mean, if you're a history buff, you know this was about 1950 years ago, just a little bit over that. So, I mean, it's, it's not that long ago when we're thinking about the grand scheme of history. His, his solution was to place blame on this great fire on the Christians to begin a massive manhunt for any and all believers in the city. They were to be brought and tortured if they did not renounce their faith. And as a result, you had believers being tarred and burned as torches to light the streets. They were literally put on poles as street lamps. Uh, They're being fed to the animals in the Colosseums and all. Uh, there was mass exodus of the believers from public life to the catacombs beneath the city out of fear of their lives. And so again, when we think about what's happening in the period in the life of what's happening in the Hebrew believers is when we talk about a gathering for worship, there is, uh, and without exaggeration, a small group gathering, a few people, a few families. So this calls many to question their faith and to question the realities of who they were as followers of Jesus, to question who and what God was doing in their life, asking whether God was really in control, why God would allow such heinous activities. And, and you stop here for just a moment, and let's not just rush through this, but I mean, and ask honest, reflective question. If God is really in control, why is our brother and sister lighting up the street? Why is our brother and sister being eaten in the, in the center of the Colosseum? How is Nero being allowed to to place blame on this great fire, which it wasn't a definitive 
moment in this day that he started the fire, but it was pretty well circulated that he was the one who caused the fire and he was absent while most, most of Rome burned. So as a follower of Jesus or even just as a human being, you're sitting around asking realistic questions. If God is in control, why? Why? Or perhaps... Perhaps Christ was just another prophet who came, like their Jewish forefathers, and had always said. All of these are a direct result of the great persecution brought on through the emperor Nero by the great fire in AD 64. And the writer of Hebrews, the pastor, sends this letter, this sermon, to be spread to the believers to remind them, to remind them uh, of some main points, the supremacy of Christ to remind them of the teachings of Christ, the promises of a faithful God, and to beseech them to remain faithful above all and through all that they experienced in their life. As they heard of the letter coming to them, they would gather with extreme anticipation, looking for hope and looking for something to urge them on, looking for something to plant their feet on as they endured this great persecution, as they endured this impending martyrdom in their lives. Friends, you and I can turn on the news or open the internet daily and we can read about, even today, our brothers and sisters who are being murdered for their faith. Perhaps even some of us in this room have faced questions or doubts or fears about who God is, about what God is doing and how God is leading in moments that we face day in and day out in this life. I'm sure even in this past week, some of us have asked those questions. If God is sovereign and God is in control, why does blank happen? Or how does God allow this to happen in our lives? If God is in control, how do the circumstances that are going on in the world, going on across the globe, how do circumstances that are going on right here in our city, across our streets, how does God allow that to happen how is God leading in moments of this life? But friends, one thing remains true. Christ is king. Christ is king. And we are, are not to fear death for we know, we can know with absolute certainty that martyrdom may be the means for the expansion of the kingdom. And you say, well, that's a pretty bold and extreme statement. But when we read ahead to Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse 9, we read the words that are given to John in Revelation and he says, when he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne and they cried out with a loud voice. Here, this is from the martyrs. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And verse 11 then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Friends, we can read this in confidence knowing that the means of the gospel going forth is not means that we might define or means that we might choose, but means that God has chosen for his glory and for his fame, for his gospel to go to all peoples and all nations. And so as we come into this passage now, we face the truth that we are here to worship, that we are here to seek God, and we are here to grow in wisdom and knowledge as we study his word directly. So we come to Hebrews chapter 1, specifically looking at verses 1 through 4. And we read... Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited and is more excellent than theirs. Friends, hear these words. Verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We know from our studies of the Old Testament and from what we have, have seen written that God spoke time and time again in the Old Testament through different ways and circumstances, always guiding and always leading his people, reminding them of his promises. We see this over and over again. He's reminding the people of his promises, fulfilling the covenant, sustaining them by his words, providing the law to point them and point us back to him, reminding us through the law that we don't measure up, but we have a God who's providing for us through him. He provides for us and provided for his people through the provisions. On the way out of Egypt, on the way to the promised land, on the way out of captivity, he provides for them miraculously through the provisions, through the bread, through the manna from heaven. He provides for them through the water. We have so many excellent examples of how God has spoken throughout history to his people. We can go back to how he communicates with Adam and Eve as, as he walks with them in the coolness of the day. We see God commanding Noah to build an ark in Genesis chapter 6 to save a remnant, to, to remove to remove all the darkness that has come on earth, we see God speaking to Abraham in multitudes of ways, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram and Sarah to go and to leave their country and to leave all they know, to go to a place that he will show them. In Genesis chapter 18, where God sends angels to inform Abraham about the impending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God communicates to Moses via the burning bush that was on fire but wasn't burning up. In Exodus chapter 3, what? That he had heard the cries of his people. So not only is God communicating with Moses, but he's hearing his children. He is responding to the cries of his people. God speaks to Ezekiel through visions and Daniel through dreams. In 1 Kings 19.12, God spoke to Elijah in a still small voice. Throughout the Old Testament, we find God communicating with his people, whether it be through the law, the prophets, the kings, the judges, or angels, or himself in bodily form. God speaks. God speaks. There's no denying the revelation of God through himself, through his word. He leads his people for the purpose of his redemption. What we find here is the significance of this immensely created and different types of communication that is dramatically demonstrated God's loving desire to communicate with his people. He desires this. It's never lacking in significance. It's never boring. It's never something that can be irrelevant. It's always adequate for the moment. It always is captivating the attention of those he's speaking to. It's always progressive and revealing more of God and his ways. This should be a huge comfort to us even today as we gather here in these uncertain times. But then we come to verse 2 and it says, But in these last days, 
So in these last days, in the days in AD 64, in these last days as we gather here in 2019, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. And so there's a difference for us, however, who live under the new covenant as we live in the period in which Christ himself, the word of God, has come and dwelt among us, eliminating the need of a mediator as he himself has mediated the great chasm that existed between God and man due to sin that came about during the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So we look at John 1.14 and we see specifically the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son of God, the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have Jesus. We don't need a mediator anymore. We see the word come alive in the New Testament so that we no longer have to wait for the coming of the Lord. For he has arrived for us. We no longer have to wait for the revelation of the word. For he has put on flesh and we get him. Remember when we were studying the Gospel of John a year or so ago now? The, the great and the most relevant statement we could say is Jesus put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood so that we could relate to him and see him and communicate with him so that we might know him. This is the greatest form of communication through Jesus. The message from the pastor to the believers in Rome is to realize that there is no silence here. As they're facing impending doom and death and persecution, as they're, as they're facing these great questions, is that there's no separation here. God is not missing from the scene, but he's ever present and he's speaking a word that is not old. It's not irrelevant. It's not dead, but a word that is alive and is a direct representation of himself. We don't need to question whether God has left us or whether God knows us or what God is doing. For God is not removed, but he is alive and the word is alive. We see in Hebrews chapter 4, 12, the word is alive and present and active. That's a, that's a Good promise for all of us today. We no longer have to go to a priest to intercede for us on our behalf. We no longer have to go to any other intermediary. But we can go directly to Christ himself, whom the writer here reminds us is the appointed heir of all things. The appointed heir of all things, the creator of the world. And as we go on, we see that in him is the radiance of the glory of God, the sustainer of the, uh, the universe, the purifier of sins, the ultimate ruler so in him we have redemption, in him we have life, in him we have an inheritance, for in him we become children of God. So we might feel slighted in saying that we do not hear from God, or that we feel that God is distant from us, or that he is not speaking to us. But friends, quite the opposite is true. Quite the opposite is true when we realize the true and absolute nature of who Christ is, and how that nature affects each part of our lives, for when we grow as believers... Our God does not shrink, right? As we grow closer to God, it's not that we consume all of the knowledge that there is to know about God, for our knowledge will never outgrow God. The more we learn about our Savior, the greater still God will be to us, and the more majestic his nature will be to us. The more we grow towards our knowledge of God, the more we will become to know God, the more majestic he'll be, the more beautiful he'll be, the more we will begin to see the glory of his nature and the more, the more majestic his power. That's what we get to see and understand. When we take these attributes of his supremacy, we were reminded of the pure magnificence of our salvation and the hope that we have yet in God. We can go back to our recent study of Ephesians and remember that in Ephesians chapter 2, 
that we were wandering aimlessly in this life. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but by grace. The emphasis is, but by grace, God has made us alive. And we think that's such a simple concept, but the more we grow closer to God, the but in that sentence becomes more majestic and more beautiful because we begin to see the magnificence that God is growing us in knowledge and fullness of grace in him and through him. Because what do we see here in this passage here? It says, Christ is the inheritor of all things. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, son whom he appointed the, inher- the heir of all things. Romans 11 verse 36, it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. When we look at this verse, we see not a God who is limited by creation or a God who, is, who receives part of creation, but God, Christ the inheritor, uh, inheritor of all of creation. For in him all is created. Therefore all belongs to him. Him. All belongs to him. For we know that from the beginning, this world was created for Christ's rule that we see in all of creation. David announced it in his second psalm. He says in second psalm beginning in verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." The ends of the earth, your possession. The your here is Christ. Friends, this is great comfort in knowing that regardless of our life circumstances, regardless of the circumstances of the world, North Korea, China, Russia, the United States, Sudan, India, all of these countries are Christ's inheritance and none of them will thwart his control or his rule. Let that sink in for a minute. No world power, no world dominion can ever thwart the power or control of Christ. And in the same majestic picture, we find that all believers are gathered there with Christ. All of us are gathered there with Christ. Romans 8, 17, for we are heirs with Christ. We can take great comfort in knowing no world power, no world dominion, no person, no country has dominion over us. Nothing can destroy us because we are heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters of God, Romans 8, 16. And though we may face persecution, and though we may face pain, though we may face suffering, though we may face trials and, and many things in this life, we are heirs and with Christ. We are sons and daughters of the King. And this inheritance cannot be taken away. Regardless of cancer, regardless of suffering and sickness, regardless of any world ruler who stands up and says otherwise, no one can take us from the hands of our God. No one. We know that God has bought our souls and now we are his through the purchase that was made on the cross. And it is absolute and it is permanent and it will last for all eternity. And we can take great peace and comfort in knowing that. And the second main point we come to this morning is Christ is the creator of the universe. We see 
in verse 2 again, he says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son who appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. When we understand Christ rightly as the inheritor of all things, we should then seek to understand the greatness of what all of this includes. When we look to Christ as the creator, we cannot limit ourselves to just what we see and know and understand. Friends, if we just limit it to our ability to understand things, imagine... Imagine how small our perspective and view of God would be. God is not limited to our earthly understanding. God is infinite in his power and control. When we perceive the greatness of creation, we think of what we see around us and what we can touch but do we really perceive creation and the creative wonder of what Christ is and what he has done? Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking, who has been called one of the most brilliant theoretical physicists since Einstein, says in his, one of his books, A Brief History of Time, that our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll. And that it is over 100,000 light years across about 600 trillion miles, he says. We now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. That's a lot of stars. Just going to point that out. We could have just said it has a lot of stars. But apparently we need to know the number. It is commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies, each 600 trillion miles across, containing 100,000 million stars, is 3 million light years. On top of that, the work of Edwin Hubble, based on the Doppler effect, has shown that all red spectrum galaxies are moving away from us, and that nearly all are red. Thus, the universe is constantly expanding. Some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away and racing away at 200 million miles an hour. Even I can't drive that fast. Finally, the fact of the expanding universe demands a beginning. Though Hawking now doubts that a Big Bang was its beginning. Friends, this is not about spouting off numbers or blowing somebody's mind scientifically, but expanding our understanding of the supremacy of our Savior. The actual Greek word here in verse 2 that we have translated to world is the word ion, which actually means eternity. Now, I'm not a great Greek scholar, but the word is significant in our understanding of the greatness of the verse, through whom he also created eternity, the world. The actual Greek translation would read, through whom he also created all time. If we think about that, it changes our perspective from eternity to eternity. It is important that we do not limit based on our limited knowledge, but realize that Christ is transcendent of all time and the creator of all time. Friends, how big is our Savior? How big is our God? How often do we think about, when we think about our lives, we think about our day we were born and the day we're going to die and everything's limited to the timeline of which we can physically touch and understand and comprehend 
but Christ is the creator of all things, eternity past, eternity future. He's not limited by the scope of what we can understand and comprehend. Friends, he didn't create us to comprehend all things. He created us to comprehend him. He created us to worship him. He created us to know him. He created us to enjoy the presence of him. The rest is the details that we don't necessarily have to know. We get to enjoy the presence of him, to love the presence of him. And he gives us the book to teach us more about him. John 1, 3, it says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, whom all things, whom are all things and for whom we exist. Get this, whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Number three, Christ is the sustainer of the universe. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Notice this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We know that Christ did not just create the universe and leave it to fall into chaos. Friends, we need to remember this and know this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He didn't just leave the world to fall into chaos, although it becomes increasingly popular to think that in our society, a God who is detached from his people, letting them go about their way, leaving it to our own devices to destroy themselves and the world without any thought or concern of himself, but our very understanding of the nature of Christ and our salvation contradicts anything that would lead us to believe this. For we know that we, if we are not by the divine work of Christ acting first, if it were not by the divine work of Christ acting first on our behalf, we would not know him. It is by God's grace that we know Christ. It is by God's work that we know him. We see this through scripture, that Christ is active in the work of sustaining his creation. Colossians 1.17. And he is before things, before all things, and in him all things hold together. Like, it's in the book. We're not making this up. It's here. We know that only Christ... Only through Christ we have experienced renewal in our lives. As David cried out in Psalms 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit within me. It is not by ourselves that our hearts are clean, but by the sustaining power of Christ in us. The power that can create something out of nothing. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is in a new creation. We have nothing to fear. The believers in Rome who were facing torture at the hands of Nero had nothing to fear. Why? Because their Savior is bigger than Rome. Their Savior is bigger than Rome, the sustainer of all that held everything together, that had held Rome together, the creator of the atoms that allowed the stones to be held together, and their Savior would sustain them, whether it be for this life, in this moment, or in the next life. He was holding it all together. He was the sustainer. When we think about our president taking the oath of office for perhaps one of the most powerful positions in the world, in reality, the president does not have that much power. He doesn't. When we look at the king whom we submit our lives to, and it is here that we can find great comfort no matter no, no, what man may become in this world, they still hold no rank. They hold no rank 
when it comes to the greatness of our Savior. So we can look at world leaders and we can look to our president. We can look to all these people. And we, can, we can know with absolute certainty that king is on the throne. And men, all men will bow down. All will bow down to the throne. We will all be counted equal when we bow. Some will bow willingly and worship to God. Others will be forced to bow out of obedience to the king. We can know with certainty that he is sustaining even when we think our lives are falling apart, even when we think things aren't going the way we ought to, even when we think the world is falling apart, even when we think the darkness is encroaching in. God is the one who is allowing and keeping gravity working, who's keeping oxygen being oxygen, who's keeping the clouds being the clouds and, and the air being the air. He's keeping it working. He's the sustainer. He is not some divine clockmaker who's up there spinning it every once in a while and then going on vacation. He is actively engaged with the lives of his children. We see it time and time again. Galatians 4, chapter 4, our, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, we cry out to our father, Abba, Father. It's a loving relationship we have with our dad. It is not a disconnected relationship. Then we come to point number four, verse three. He says, Christ is the radiance of God. And he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Notice that the writer does not say that Christ reflects. Friends, he doesn't reflect the glory of God or is created in the image of God, but radiates Gets this, he radiates the glory of God. Christ is the source of light, not a secondary source, the primary source. Christ is the exact imprint of his nature, not a copy, but the exact imprint. We can look to scripture and see the radiance of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, where Peter and James and John travel up the mountain with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. We also see another instance in scripture where you find Saul confronted uh, in the book of Acts on his way to Damascus, and in Acts chapter 9, beginning verse 3, it says, now as he went on his way, he approached approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And we can look ahead to 2 Peter verse, or chapter 3 and realize the greatness of the radiance of Christ and which will dissolve the world, beginning in verse, or 2 Peter 3, verse 10, says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friends, we see clearly the radiance of God in Christ. The fullness of Christ has come to earth. The fullness of God has come in Christ to earth. And then we come to number five. Christ is the great high priest. He's the purifier. The whole problem with creation and with the world revolved around sin and the need for redemption. The whole of scripture points us to God's promise of redemption. Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And the one who will come and restore communion for God's children and redeem his people once and for all. We see this from the first book of the Bible in Genesis. Carried throughout to the last pages when the consummation is made complete in Revelation. And we know that in Christ we have 
the gospel. We have God who became flesh, who dwelt among us to live and to teach us how to live, to obey him, to offer his life in place of our necessary sacrifices. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and John 3, we find in Christ the priest who came to place himself on the altar to restore the kingdom. But not only is Christ the great high priest and the purifier, but Christ is the great high priest and the ruler. Look at this in the beginning, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 says, and after making purification for sins, he sat down, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. When it is all said and done, when the work of salvation was complete, Christ sat down. You say, why is this significant? Something we might quickly pass over and move on and think that it's no big deal, but quite contrary. When the priests would go into the temple to make their sacrifice, they would never be allowed to sit. They would sew bells into their robes and tie ropes to their legs, and if the bells ever stopped ringing, they were dead. Like, sorry to cut it to you straight, but they were dead because there were stins still in them. If they ever stopped ringing, if those bells ever started stopped jingling, they were dead. And they would pull their bodies out. Theirs was not a time or reason for the Levitical priest to sit. The sacrifices must always continue because there was continual sin to be atoned for. But notice this. Notice this. Christ sits down. Why is it so magnificent that Christ sits down? Because sin has been atoned for. It is finished. It's finished. Finished. He completed the sacrifice from the cross. And he says in John 19.30, it is finished and it is complete. And now is the time to sit in the place of highest honor and the place of great majesty at the right hand of his Father. And it is here that we are reminded once and for all that there is nothing. Friends, not only is Christ been atoner, but it's important for us to remember that there is nothing that you and I can do to atone for our sins. It is here that there is nothing that we can do to pay for our sins. But we can look ahead to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 and we can see that every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away the sins. The priests were doing something that never took away the sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, and we say, praise God. It is in this hope that we find the gospel, for it is here that we find the majesty and the glory of Christ who came to us first and completed the work and is reigning at the right hand of God to this very day, in this very moment, in our best days and in our worst days, he is actively involved in our salvation and our sanctification. For we find again in Romans chapter 5, since therefore we have now been justified in his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. Shall we be saved by his life. And Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Friends, the truth of this whole message, this whole sermon written to these Hebrew people is to awaken our hearts, to call us to awaken our minds, to call us to peace, to comfort us regardless of our life circumstances, to remind us of the salvation that is secure in and through Christ. The pastor is writing perhaps in great anguish to his congregation that they are facing persecution and death. If they do not recant their testimony of faith in Christ in this opening sentence, he gives us and them every, remember, every reason to remember that God has not become silent. 
God is not silent in these last days, but provided the greatest mediator in Christ, God incarnate. Friends, in these first four verses, we find a great confidence to go about our lives as followers of Jesus, a reminder that the kingdom of heaven cannot, will not, ever be thwarted for it is secure for all eternity as followers of Jesus regardless of the circumstances we might find ourselves regardless of what the world may appear to be in the kingdom of heaven cannot will not be thwarted for God is on the throne Christ is seated it's so important that we understand that Christ is seated on your darkest days Christ is seated at the right hand of God the atonement has been made once and for all and there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation but Christ has called us to be his children he has called us sons and daughters of the king so we can know and we can remain steadfast and anchored and face whatever comes knowing that Christ is the inheritor of all the creator of all the sustainer of all the magnificent radiance of God the purifier and he's seated at the right hand of God. In a week where we unexpectedly lose one of our dear family members, we can stand here with great confidence and not mourn as those without hope because we can know Christ is seated at the right hand of God and it is good. We can stand with great confidence knowing the king is on his throne. The gospel is not empty words, but it is confidence in the kingdom of heaven. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, hear this and be encouraged and be renewed in your love for the king. Perhaps there's something you're struggling with and you're saying, I'm trying to atone for this sin on my own. Hear this and give it to God this morning. Recognizing that he is on the throne. There are no more sacrifices needed for that sin. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus this morning and you're struggling. Hear the message of the gospel this morning. Submit to a God who has already brought redemption to the world. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above all. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together.